Strange Stories UK here again. Uh, episode 32. A bit of a mouthful, the title. Bernard Spilsbury and the Sussex Murders at the Crumbles and Crowborough. We're looking at the best and worst of Bernard Spilsbury. So today we're looking at the different sides of a character who had a great influence in court cases in the UK a hundred years ago. A number of factors came together to allow Bernard Spilsbury to influence juries and judges and the press to such a degree that it's possible that innocent people were sentenced to death as a result of his influence. People had such a great faith in the new science of forensic evidence and such great faith in Spilsbury himself that they would listen to the forensic evidence as interpreted by Spilsbury and put a lesser influence on other factors when coming to make a decision on a person's guilt. Forensic evidence is scientific-based evidence, such as blood or fingerprints. The word forensic is made up of the words for evidence and science, forensic. It was said to be first used in the UK as a result of the Whitechapel murders in the 1880s. These were popularly known as the Jack the Ripper murders. Although forensic evidence had been long used uh, to a greater extent in comparison to the UK in some European countries and the USA during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The fictional character Sherlock Holmes was a great inspiration for forensic science. He'd made his appearance in 1887. He used forensic evidence analysis in solving cases using small clues such as shoe impressions and disturbed artifacts to work out the sequence of events of a crime. Holmes also stressed the importance of a crime scene being left undisturbed and uncontaminated by others, especially the police. Holmes popularised analytical chemistry for blood residue analysis as well as toxicology examinations for poisons. He used ballistics by measuring the bullet calibres and matching them with a suspected murder weapon. These were increasingly seen as the modern ways to help solve a crime that were reported in the growing media. Newspaper circulations were rising and, it, and we, saw, we see three titles sell over a million papers each day in the early 20th century. And these newspapers were now using photographs to illustrate their stories. When reporting on a murder case, a forensic pathologist that often appeared for the prosecution was Bernard Spilsbury, a photogenic, stylish and understated witness who impressed all in his early years. His, his picture began to appear in the national press and his appearance was as many would have imagined Sherlock Holmes to look like. He was a new kind of hero a scientist who could solve mysteries, a guiding light in squalid and savage murder cases. He was unshakable in the witness box and debonair in his looks, never seen without a top hat, tails, buttonhole and spats. Spilsby was able to translate the language of the laboratory into accurate layman's terms. Jury members appreciated this. They were dazzled by his charisma and tended to convict on his say-so. Judges too were also entranced in their summing up, erroneously favouring Spilsbury's findings over those of pathologists called on by the defence. Of nearly 200 trials at which he spoke for the prosecution, 
only a handful ended in acquittal. Spilsby was born in 1877 at Lymington Spa, Warwickshire. He came from a family who wanted to improve themselves. His father was a chemist, had a chemist shop. Spilsby went to Oxford University. He had the looks and charm and dressed well, but made little mark at Oxford, training to be a doctor. He began his training at St Mary's Hospital at Paddington in London in October 1899. This was a fortunate choice for Sir Billsbury, as he began to work with three men who were considered to be the founders of modern forensic medicine in the UK. Spilsbury became assistant to a team of men who were determined to give respectability to the forensic profession. Dr Luff, Dr Wilcox, both toxicologists, and Dr Pepper, a pathologist. They had a great influence on Spilsbury, changing his career path to become pathologist for the Home Office. Spilsbury had no compunction about performing post-mortems, which a lot of doctors disliked, and he gained a lot of hands-on experience. He was amidrodexous, which would be an advantage to uh, when being a pathologist. Factors seemed to work in Spilsbury's favour. He was in the right place at the right time for a pathologist. Although there was not a lot of money in criminal cases, there were just 20 to 30 murders a year in the London area. Today there's almost three murders a week. There were increasing opportunities for, patho for a pathologist in uh, London in the 1920s. The London County Council had just requested that all general hospitals were to appoint two pathologists to perform post-mortems on all cases of sudden death and a fee of two guineas for each autopsy. And that's about £250 in today's value. Spilsby devoted himself to his new career. It's said that he had no close friends and was attracted to the society of older men. He was a workaholic. He quickly made progress and by 1905 he was giving evidence in courts in the London area. He perfected a simple style of explaining scientific detail which impressed and persuaded judges and juries and <clears throat> copies of his lectures were popular. Although as a lecturer it was said he was flat, matter-of-fact delivery was not inspiring. Spilsbury became well known after the Crippen case when it was essentially his forensic evidence that found Crippen guilty evidence incident which is now questioned. The Crippen case captured the imagination on the public in the USA and in the UK. Murder trials in the UK in the 1920s were quickly organised and didn't take long in comparison to cases heard today. The Crippen court case was over in four days. There were no long drawn out appeals and if you were sentenced to death it would normally happen within two months of the case going to court. The Crumbles was a local name for a quarry area at Pevensey Bay Beach on the Sussex coast. It's changed a lot in the last hundred years and has been renamed Sovereign Harbour today. It's unrecognisable now. There's a village being built where the Crumbles was and there's wider development in the area where there was very little in, the in 1920. So in 1920 the Crumbles was quite a desolate place with a broad shingled beach, wind-blown vegetation for as far as the eye could see from the deserted coast road. There were some isolated coast guard cottages and a larger detached building known as the officer's house. These were at the Pevensey end of the Crumbles, at the beginning of the Wall's End Road. 
There were some other dwellings dotted along the coastal area. There was also a small branch line of the London, Brighton and South Coast Railway used for transporting shingle to be used as railway ballast. Incidentally, it's now illegal to remove shingle from a UK beach since the Coastal Protection Act 1949. In fact, taking anything from the beach seems to be illegal, even a jar of sand. But back in the 1920s, train loads were being taken for embankment construction. The crumbles first came to the public's attention during August 1920, when a 13-year-old boy found a human foot protruding from the pebbles. This was part of a body of Irene Munro, who had been beaten to death around the head by a blood-covered stone found nearby. Irene was just 17 years of age on her first trip away from home, refusing to go with her parents for their holiday to Scotland. She wanted to go on holiday by herself. Irene, tall, attractive brunette on holiday at Eastbourne, made the unwise decision to befriend Jack Field, aged 19, and William Gray, aged 29, two local men with bad reputations, who for some reason murdered her and inexpectedly buried her under the shingle. During their court case, where they both received the death penalty, Spilsbury argued that it seems that Irene had survived for a short time, maybe half an hour, although she would have been unconscious. Death may have been accelerated by the weight of shingle on the body compressing the chest. Death being due to the combined effects of shock, loss of blood and asphyxia. No one knows why the men committed the murder. Irene did not have much money on her, just two pounds. There were no signs of sexual interference. Both men tried to blame each other, but neither gave a confession before death. Spilsbury only had an advisory capacity in this case and did not give evidence at Lewis Crown Court, but he played a central role in a similar case less than four years later, another one featuring a murder at the Crumbles. Emily Kay came from a middle-class family, a sporty, practical and intelligent. She must have read about the case of Irene Munro and thought that such a thing could never happen to her. She was not in the habit of forming promiscuous acquaintances with dubious young men. Emily was in her 30s and still single when she moved to the Bloomsbury district of London to work as a shorthand typist for a firm of chartered accountants. Through her work, Emily met Patrick Herbert Mahoon. Mahoon, of Irish descent, was said to be handsome, 34 years of age, and a salesman with a reputation as a womaniser. He was born in West Derby, Liverpool in 1889. Mahoon, unknown to those who worked with him, had a criminal history. In 1916, he had been jailed for breaking into a bank and attacking a woman with a hammer. Mahoon had been saved by his wife who had hidden this conviction and managed to get him a job with the same company she worked for after his release from prison after serving a five-year sentence. They lived in Richmond, London, where his easy charm made him popular, although he is said to have been vain. He was secretary of the local bowls club and earned a good salary of £750 per year, which is over £100,000 in today's value. In his sales work, he had a comfortable life, but he had two weaknesses that would prove his undoing, gambling and women. Emily, who was said at the time to be at a dangerous age, 
felt passionate for, for, for Mahoon when she met him. She told him that she was 29 years of age rather than her true age of 38. She knew he was married, but she was determined and possessive. It's thought that Emily had discovered Mahone's past, discovering his secret as she had read an old newspaper with a report of the trial that had been lining a drawer. Emily became pregnant with Mahone's child and told Mahone that she wanted to stay and wanted him to stay with her and provide for her and the baby. Emily left her work and was living off her savings. She started selling off her shares during February 1924 in order to help fund a new life with Mahone. She had fell ill during the march with influenza and went to Bournemouth to recuperate. Mahone travelled down to see her at the end of her stay and they shared a double room in the South Western Hotel, Southampton, where they registered as Mr and Mrs Mahone. Mahone had bought a diamond and sapphire cluster ring from a jeweller's in Southampton and on the return to London, Emily was telling her friends that she was engaged to Mahone. At the beginning of April, Emily told close friend Edith Warren that a date had been fixed for the wedding and that the pair were going to emigrate to South Africa. Emily wrote to her sister on the 5th of April and told her the same story, saying they were making plans to start a new life together in South Africa. But Mahone was stringing her along. He had no intention of going anywhere with her. On the 5th of April, Mahone, calling himself Mr Waller, travelled down to Pevensey and agreed to rent the officer's house at the Crumbles from the 11th of April to the 6th of June 1924. The officer's house was also known as the Bungalow. It was a detached residence with six rooms next to the terraced Coast Guard's cottages. This was close to the place where Irene Munro's body had been found four years previous to Mah Mahone started renting it on the 11th of April, 1924. Emily drew out her savings of £600, this is when the average annual salary was £150, and gave it to Mahone for their new life together. Emily gave up her rooms in London and moved into an Eastbourne hotel, the Kenilworth Court Hotel, where she wrote to friends on the notepaper of the Kenilworth Hotel. The letters were actually posted on the 16th of April. Emily checked out of the hotel on the 12th of April. <clears throat> she requested the receptions to forward any mail to the post restaurant Paris, where they were supposed to be going for a holiday before relocation to South Africa. The same day, Mahone had paid a visit to Stain's Kitchen Equipment Company and had purchased a 10-inch cook's knife and a small meat saw. Emily met Mahone at Eastbourne Station and they took a taxi to the officer's house. Easter 1924 passed and Mrs Mahone started to wonder where her husband had been for the previous two weekends. While he was away he sent her messages from Eastbourne, Bexhill and Vauxhall Bridge with unconvincing explanations as to why he could not be at home with her. When an acquaintance saw him at Plumpton races Mrs Mahone suspected that her husband had began his gambling again. This had proved so costly to her in the past. She decided to suit uh, to, to search his suit pockets and look for clues and came across a cloakroom ticket for Waterloo Station. And this is the story that she gave in court. A friend who had been in the railway police and was now a private detective investigated on her behalf and on the 1st of May he withdrew a blocked Gladstone bag with a ticket. He forced the bag open, finding a torn pair of silk undergarments, 
two pieces of white silk, a blue silk scarf and a large cook's knife, everything being stained with blood and grease. There was also a brown canvas racket bag with the initials EBK. This was taken at once to the police. The police took the bag back to the cloakroom and waited to see who would come and claim it. The next evening, the 2nd of May, Mahoon, called, calling himself Mr Waller, was arrested as he came for the bag. When asked to explain the bloody contents, he gave an unconvincing story about carrying dog meat as he liked to feed dogs. Mahoon was kept in custody as the police waited for him to give an explanation that they could find acceptable. Eventually, Mahone told of his ten-month affair with Emily and the four days they'd spent at the cottage at the Crumbles. Emily had travelled to Eastbourne on April the 7th. He travelled down on April the 11th when they went to the officer's house. But it ended in a violent quarrel and her death when she fell and hit her head on a coal scuttle. In his panic, Mahone severed the woman's legs and head and stuffed the various parts in the trunk. He later burnt the head, feet and legs in the fire at the front of the cottage, in the front room of the cottage. In between trips home to London, Mahone cut up the rest of the body, boiling some parts in a large pot on the stove and wrapping smaller portions in brown paper, throwing them out of the train. He eventually gave police the woman's name, Emily Kay. The story was full of improbabilities and defects. Mahone's prime objective was to give a story which did not suggest premeditated murder, which would have necessitated the death penalty. The local police went to the cottage on the 11th of May, and the London detectives travelled down the next day. With them was Spilsbury, and his new assistant and lover, the widow of a friend, Mrs Bainbridge. Bainbridge would write up his findings as he carried out his post-mortems. Spilsby was at the top of his game. He'd just been knighted. He had a lover and a soulmate, as well as a family and four children. It was up to Spilsby to disprove Mahoon's story, a story that no one believed, but it had to be proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Mahone was a murderer, a premeditated murderer, and that's what Spilsby was determined to do. The scene was gruesome. Spilsby later said that it was the worst of his career. The front room opened into the sitting room, which was well decorated. There was a two-gallon saucepan on the fire hearth. In the dining room next door, there was another large saucepan on the fire hearth and a flimsy coal scuttle in the form of a cauldron with hollow tripod legs, which was bent. In one of the bedrooms was a large trunk with the initials EBK. Emily Bilby K. There was a kit bag and a hat box. By the time Spilsby had arrived, watched by a growing crowd of spectators, the house had been searched. Spilsby put on his long white apron and rubber gloves and started to investigate the house and its contents. Spilsby spent eight hours in the cottage that day. He described his findings at the subsequent trial of Mahoon. On a rusty tenon saw, there were grease and there was human flesh. Various articles of female clothing, blood-stained and greasy. There were specks of human blood on the scuttle and the saucer of, uh, of solidified fat. The two-gallon saucepan was half full of reddish fluid with a thick layer of grease on the surface. 
There was also a piece of boiled human flesh in the pot. In the hat box, among items of clothing, were 37 pieces of boiled human flesh, cut or sawn. The large trunk contained four large pieces of human body parts, sawn but not boiled. On one of these pieces, the left chest and shoulder, there was a bruise over the shoulder blade, the result of a blow inflicted before death. There was also a biscuit tin in the trunk containing human organs. The police had found bloodstains on the carpet, which had soaked through to the floorboards. In the kit bag, there was Emily's clothing and belongings. In the fireplace, Sir Billsbury sifted through the soot and ash to find a thousand fragments of human bone, some of which he was able to piece together. There was most of a human female body, but the skull, upper part of the neck and lower portion of one leg was missing. Spilsby took all the body parts back to his post-mortem room at St Bart's Hospital and spent the next couple of nights reconstructing Emily's body, piecing together the boiled, burnt, sawn and pulverised fragments. The atmosphere inside the cottage was dreadful. The stench was almost unbearable. Spilsby had a poor sense of smell and was a chain smoker, so this did not bother him too much. But a table was set up in the garden for Spilsby to work from in view of the general public that had massed around the house. It's thought that a crowd of up to a thousand had gathered in the isolated place to watch events at the cottage. May have been Spilsbury showboating and a publicity stunt by the police to conduct Spilsbury's work so openly. One result of the case was Spilsbury worried about the lack of protective gear, leaving police open to infection. After the case had concluded, he approached the Home Office and helped develop the murder bag, a portable kit for police officers that included not just rubber gloves, but also tape measures, sample bags and other tools to help them record evidence. The murder bag was used in such crimes for many years afterwards. The trial began on the Tuesday the 15th of July 1924. Spilsby said that he had been able to identify all the parts as human and they all corresponded to one human body. The four pieces of chest and abdomen wall fitted together accurately to form one trunk, and the organs in the tin matched. The body was of an adult female of big build and fair hair. She was pregnant and healthy. It was an impressive job that Spilsby had done to fit all the pieces together. The court wanted to know how she had died, but Spilsby could not do this as there was no skull, and he suspected that she had been attacked around the head which had been disposed of by Mahoon, so it would be difficult to disprove his defence. Mahoon had been taken by surprise by his arrest and had come up with a story of Emily dying by striking her head on the scuttle. The police soon discovered Mahoon's background. He'd forged cheques and bezeled money. It was in 1916 when he broke into the bank and stunned a woman with a hammer. He'd waited until his victim had recovered consciousness, kissing and fondling her, saying that he had not meant to hurt her. He was sent to jail for five years. The police knew that Mahone was uh, an accomplished liar and did not believe much of what he said. Mahone claimed that he had purchased the cook's knife in Tenensaw that he used to cut up Emily's body after she was dead, but police proved that it was purchased before this, thus indicating premeditation. Added to this was the fact that Emily had, been, had given Mahoon all of her considerable savings, 
which had been cashed by Mahun using false names and addresses. During the court case, Mahoon claimed that Emily had died by hitting her head on the coal scuttle. The scuttle was a cheap item, whose legs tended to buckle and bottoms tended to wear through quickly. Spilsby was of the opinion that Emily Kay could not have received a fatal injury from falling on a coal scuttle. As a severe blow sufficient to kill would have crumpled the coal scuttle, and this was clearly not the case. Mahoon claimed to have burnt Emily's head in the fire and broken up the charred remains with a poker. In his usual thorough meth manner, Spilsby burnt a sheep's head to try to duplicate these conditions to see if the ashes from the fireplace matched those in the bungalow's grate. It did not turn out possible to use a fire to turn the head into something brittle enough to smash into pieces, as Mahone had claimed. It was thought that Mahone had disposed of Emily's head at sea. Perhaps what did Mahone most harm in his defence was the Ethel Duncan factor. On the 10th of April, Mahone had met Ethel in Richmond, London, the day before he went to the cottage. He chatted her up and made arrangements to meet her up with her again later. On the 16th of April, 24 hours after he had murdered Emily, Mahone was having dinner with Ethel, and the next week she stayed at the cottage with Mahone for three days after he'd sent her the money for the rail fare. Emily was in the trunk in the next room. Ethel knew another woman had been there recently as she found a woman's clothing and cosmetics there. But Mahone explained these away as belonging to his wife who had stayed there before Easter. <coughs> Mahone's explanation as to why he invited Ethel to stay being that he could not bear to be alone in the house. But it did not go well with the jury. Mahoon soon tired of Ethel, and le he left her in Eastbourne when he went to the races at Plumpton, which was the lead to his downfall when his wife learnt of him being there, thinking that he was gambling away their money, although it was probably Emily's money that was being gambled. Mahoon sent himself a telegram saying he had to return to London in order to have an excuse to get away from Ethel. The next day, Ethel saw Mahoon changing the lock of the door of one of the bedrooms. He struggled with it and in the end screwed the door closed, but not before Ethel had noticed a large brown trunk in the room, which Mahone told her contained valuable books. This would have, of course, contained Emily's body. Mahone showed Ethel the telegram and told her that they would have to go back to London the next day. They boarded the 3.30 train back to London and that evening they dined together before going to a show at the Palladium. After the show, he took her to her home in Richmond leaving her there around midnight. Mahone gave a poor uh, impression in the witness box. He had bought a new suit. He had bronzed his face with makeup, or perhaps um, tobacco juice, and tried to appear confident, hoping that his charm would win through. But his manner was thought to be carefree and uncaring. At Brixton Prison, where he was being held, he told his defence barrister how he built up a fire in the cottage and placed Emily's head on it. As the hair caught fire, the dead eyes opened, and at that exact moment there was a clap of thunder and lightning outside. This terrified Mahone, made him scared to stay at the cottage by himself. When Mahone was being questioned in court about what he did with Emily's head, the same thing happened. Thunder clapped outside, the room was illuminated by lightning as a July storm broke 
It was said that Mahone shrunk back, gripping the edge of the witness box. He was white and shaking as he answered the last questions of the day. Two of the jurymen collapsed during the evidence and had to be replaced, so gruesome was the evidence being heard in court. If it were not for the suspicions of the wife, Mulverain, Mahone may have got away with the murder. There was nothing to connect Mahone with the cottage, which had been let to a Mr Waller, while Emily Kay was thought to be with her friend, but thought by her friends to be in South Africa. If Mahone had been able to successfully dispose of the body, who would have known of the crime? But now he was convicted. At the appeal, the judge described it as a most cruel, repulsive and carefully planned murder. Mahone was hanged on September the 9th, 1924. Spilsby was at Wandsworth Prison on the day that Mahone was hanged, as he was to perform the post-mortem on his body. Spilsby was interested to see the effects of the corpse as Mahone had tried to jump across the drop while being hanged, and this action broke his back and neck. Since the time of Mahone's death was known exactly, Spilby was interested in examining the body closely to see what he could learn from this information. Spilsby was later received a letter from the Director of Public Prosecutions acknowledging the extreme value of the services and thanking him for going beyond what was expected in the case of Mahone and telling him how appreciated it was by the judge, the counsel and the jury for the care and skill he had brought to the case. The cottage, or bungalow, as it was often referred to at the Crumbles, had a ghoulish fascination for many years afterwards. It became a tourist attraction when the lease was taken over by a group of local people. Visitors were charged a shilling each for guided tours of the cottage, and the queues outside increased, cold drinks were served at the front gate. There was considerable local protest, and for two weeks the bungalow was closed only to open again with the entrance fee increased to tuppence as coachload of the curious continued to arrive. The building was demolished in uh, 1953, but to the present day it's a popular site for ghost walks, as it's claimed that a ghost of Irene or Emily haunts the area. In the same year, and in the same county, Spilsby was involved in a similar case of a man trying to free himself than the amorous entanglement. But whereas Patrick Mahone was clearly a smooth-talking evil murderer, there are some doubts that linger over Norman Thorne's intention to murder his fiancée. John Norman Holmes Thorne was said to be a solid, dull and dependable. He was not handsome or particularly clever, but the sort of man who marries a girl next door and plods happily through life. He lived in the London suburb of Kensal Rise and had known Emily Cameron, sorry, Elsie Cameron, who lived close by since childhood. They had both attended the same Wesleyan church where Thorne gave Sunday school classes. They became engaged in 1922. Thorne had been an electrical apprentice but lost his job in the trade slump in the early 1920s. So Thorne borrowed £100 from his father and attempted to make his living by starting a poultry farm at Luxford Lane, Blackness, near Groborough, Sussex, just 20 miles away from the Crumbles murder site. Incidentally, Thorne had followed the Crumbles case closely. He collected newspaper cuttings about it. Crowborough in the 1920s was just a village, and Luxford Lane was a rural area, 
which, like the Crumbles area, had seen a dramatic development over the last hundred years. The area is no longer recognisable. Crowborough has grown into a small town and engulfed the area where Thorne had his poultry farm, which he named Wesley Poultry Farm. He lived in a hut that he constructed. It was 12 feet by 7 feet, and it was placed among the chicken huts, where he struggled to make a living out of his hens. Elsie worked as a typist in London, but she was neurotic, inefficient, superstitious, and found it difficult to keep a job on account of her nerves. Elsie seemed obsessed with the idea of sex and marriage, which she constantly talked of. A fortune told her had told her that she was going to be married during December 1924. Elsie often visited Thorne, staying at a guest house in Crowborough, or sometimes spending the night in the hut with him. Elsie had spent six weeks at the hut during the summer of 1923, when she found temporary employment locally as a nursemaid. In the spring of 1924, Thorne met a local girl, Elizabeth Caldicott. Bessie. She was pretty and vivacious. She was a dressmaker who lived in Crowborough with his mother. They'd met at a dance. They began to fall in love and often spent time together at the hut, where Thorne started to express doubts about Elsie as a future wife, saying that he wanted to be with Bessie. Thorne was having to juggle his time between Bessie and Elsie. Elsie continued to spend weekends in Sussex with Thorne, but she must have detected a change in Thorne's attitude towards her, and she started to suffer depression. Thorne eventually told her via a series of letters about his new friendship with Bessie, saying that he'd found himself between two fires, having to choose between his childhood sweetheart and the exciting new woman in his life. Elsie responded by applying emotional pressure, claiming she was pregnant. She had first claim on him. She said that she expected him to marry her and finish with the other girl. On Friday the 5th of December, 1924, Elsie had taken time to improve her appearance with a new hairstyle, new clothes, new shoes, and without telling her father where she was going, she took her belongings in a suitcase and set off for Crowborough, determined to stay with Thorne. She'd known Thorne since childhood and must have felt confident about persuading him to be with her. Five days later, Elsie's father had no news of her, and was telegraphing Thorne and writing to him for news of her. Thorne replied that he was expecting her to arrive on the morning of the 6th of December, but she had not arrived. The police began inquiries. Thorne seemed anxious to help, allowing them to search the Wesley poultry farm. Thorne talked freely to all, including journalists who photographed him with the chickens. Thorne seemed to like the attention. He speculated that Elsie may have committed suicide by jumping in the Thames or been taken by white slavers. Thorne is said to have insisted to be photographed in a particular spot. He joked with journalists about having done away with Elsie himself. Thorne had not seemed overly upset about Elsie having gone missing. Despite Thorne insisting that Elsie had not come to him on the 5th of December, Two farm labourers, George Adams and Albert Sands, told police that they recalled seeing a young woman with a suitcase walking towards Thorne's farm at about 5pm on the 5th of December. Another neighbour, Annie Price, something of a recluse, also saw Elsie entering Thorne's farm, but she did not report it until the 10th of January 1926, <clears throat> at which point Scotland Yard were informed.
and became involved, as the local police did not seem to be making much headway. Thorne stuck to his story and consented to the farm being dug up in the search for Elsie. The police called his bluff and began digging and soon found Elsie's suitcase. Thorne then made another statement to the police saying that Elsie did visit him on the 5th of December saying she was pregnant and demanding marriage. They discussed the situation and argued about Thorne's unfaithfulness but at 9.30 Thorne had to leave the hut to meet Bessie and her mother from Crowborough at the train station and walk them home. When he returned at 11.30pm he said he found Elsie hanging from the roof beams of the hut. Thorne claimed he panicked and thinking he would be blamed for the suicide, decided by disposing of her body. He burnt her clothes in the fireplace and proceeded to saw the body into four parts with a hacksaw by the light of the fire. He forced the head into a tin box so tightly that later it was extracted with difficulty. The trunk and severed legs were wrapped in sacking and buried in the chicken run. Elsie's belongings were buried in the potato patch and a storm was contradicting everything that he had originally claimed, this new statement was met with cynicism by the police. Thorne's story was much the same as Mahone's, with one difference, that Elsie's neurotic temperament could suggest the idea of suicide. She'd threatened to her sister that she would throw herself from a train, and seemed in a desperate frame of mind when she came to see Thorne, saying that she intended to stay with him until he married her. On the 15th of January, uh, 1926, digging by the light of hurricane lamps, the police found the remains of Elsie Cameron at the spot where Thorne had insisted to be photographed by Pressman while holding a chicken, which was a picture published in the newspapers. The remains were taken by wheelbarrow to the mortuary. They were then examined by Spilsbury at the Crowborough mortuary. Elsie had not been pregnant. The remains were then interned at Willsden Cemetery, close to the family home. A month later they were brought out for a second post-mortem by Dr Robert Bronte at the request of the defence for an independent examination. Dr Bronte was a clever, quick-witted, competitive, social and talkative man. He was said to also be self-opinionated, boastful and could be rather slapdash in his work. He clashed in personality with Spilsbury who was reserved, cautious, and who used understatement and the minimum of words. When the pair met, they were courteous, but Bronte was frequently called on to contradict Spilsbury in court cases, and they did not like each other. At the time of the second post-mortem on Elsie's body, it was almost three months since her death, and her body had gone through the normal changes, being shrunken through dehydration. Bronte formed conclusions at odds with those reached by Spilsbury. To find Thorne guilty of murder, it had to be proved that Elsie showed no signs of being hanged. The beam was dismantled from the hut and brought to the court to show that there was no trace of cord or rope. An experiment was conducted by the police who suspended a hundredweight sack from the cord from a cord thrown over the beam, which was shown to leave an indentation in the wood. There was no such mark on the beam where Thorne said that he found Emily hanging. During the trial of Norman Thorne, Spilsbury with the prosecution and Bronte with the defence started clashing. 
The first issue between the two men were the bruises found on Elsie's body. This seemed to have been an attempt by the defence to confuse the issue. They were not really relevant to the main question, had Elsie been hanged? The defence barrister was Mr J.D. Castles, who had unsuccessfully defended Mahomes some months earlier. Spilsby said that he had made a thorough examination and found no signs of hanging or attempted hanging, just natural creases that were to be found on most women's necks. Spilsby argued that the death was caused by shock due to bruising on the face, head, legs and feet. Spilsby claimed that Bronte had agreed with him before the trial. During the trial, Bronte said that death had been caused by shock following an unsuccessful or interrupted attempt at self-strangulation or hanging. Bronte denied that he had agreed with Spilsbury. The word creases had been used when describing the neck, but Bronte said he thought they were not natural or normal. The argument was, were the marks on the neck natural folds or were they impressions of a rope? There was also disagreement as, uh, to, as there were broken blood vessels on the neck that may have been caused by hanging. It was suggested by Thorne they may have been, that Thorne may have placed a rope around her neck to create marks that were similar to hanging after he had killed her, not realising that such marks imposed after death would soon fade away. There was further sniping and point scoring from both men during the course of the court trial. Thorne was composed during the trial but it was stumped over certain difficult questions. The fact that Thorne had burnt the clothes that Elsie was wearing suggested that they would have shown a struggle and Thorne was getting rid of evidence. The jury was appalled by his matter-of-fact description of the dismemberment of Emily, Elsie, and how he could not explain how her watch and spectacles came to be damaged. The judge in the trial, Mr Justice Finlay, seemed in favour of the prosecution. He said of Spilsbury, in his summing up, that in his opinion, Spilsby's opinion is undoubtedly the very best opinion that could be obtained. So although there was a difference in the evidence presented by the prosecution and defence, the jury took less than 30 minutes to find Thorne guilty of murder. Thorne's appeal was dismissed, and in his last talk with his father, he is said to have said, Never mind, Dad, don't worry. I'm a martyr to Spilsbyism." He was hanged at Wandsworth Jail on the 22nd of April 1925, which would have been Elsie's 27th birthday. It's not said whether the post-mortem was carried out by Spilsbury or not. But whether Thorne was guilty or not, the question has to be asked, what sort of person is able to cut up the body of someone that he has loved and known since childhood? After the execution, the case attracted public attention and comment over whether justice had been done. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, who lived at Windlesham Manor, Crowborough, and taken an interest in the case, was one of many who doubted Thorne's guilt. Although he'd been well known for taking the side of the underdog, and his judgement had been questionable in the past. Letters appeared in the newspaper saying that Bernard Spilsbury had reached the position where what he says in the witness box commonly received unquestioning acceptance from the judge, counsel and jury. He can do no wrong. The Law Journal commented that the verdict of the jury 
on the question of pathology is value, valueless. And Thorne is entitled to feel that he's been condemned by a tribunal which was not capable of forming such a judgment, but instead followed the man with the biggest name. So suggesting the jury was incapable of working out for themselves who was right, and they just accepted Spilsbury's word. The series, Notable British Trials, was published four years after the trial, edited by the barrister Helena Normington, who was the first woman to practice as a barrister in England. In her introduction, she argues that Thorne did not receive a fair trial because Spilsbury was the Crown's sole expert witness, while the defence had four that had the same qualifications as Spilsbury and all disagreed with his analysis. She also said that juries were formed from members of the public and the British public believed that Spilsbury is infallible. The controversy over the case was kept largely out of the public view, but it made Spilsbury profoundly unpopular in his profession. Judges, lawyers and writers on legal matters all began to discuss the undue influence that Spilsbury had on the legal process. Andrew Rose published a, the latest book on Spilsbury in 2007. He claimed that Spilsbury was over-celebrated and showed no flexibility in his thought. He gives Spilsbury credit for his work rate, but claims that Spilsbury caused two miscarriages of justice that required posthumous pardons and was partly responsible for several more unsafe verdicts. In particular, Rose points out to Spilsbury's dislike of homosexuals. This led him to suppress evidence in a 1923 case of, of partial asphyxiation in a sadomasochistic game that ended in death, a sex game gone wrong. But for a last-minute reprieve, the gay soldier, Adam Durnley, would have been hanged. It was said that Spilsby thought that it was the world was be better off without Alan Durnley. Rose thought that Spilsby was afraid of losing his preeminence and worked himself to ill health and isolation. Two of his sons had recently died. He was suffering from arthritic hands, possible dementia and a lack of work. Spilsby committed suicide in the winter of 1947 by gassing himself in his laboratory. Rose wonders if the experience of completing 20,000 autopsies, many of these on long deceased bodies, had any effect. There were few mourners at the funeral. The Spectator magazine gave the Rose Book a review, saying that Spilsbury was a subject of a hagiographical biography whose paperback will be found in every second-hand bookshop in the country. And this must refer to the Brown and Tullet 1951 bestseller. Then it said that he's now the subject of a new book, the Rose Book, that's opposite in his assessment of him. And by the end of the book, not much of his reputation remains. Spilsbury claimed to be able to distinguish things such as the precise timings of bruises that were not in fact distinguishable, and as a result men were convicted of murder and executed who may have otherwise have been acquitted on the grounds of reasonable doubt. Ironically, Spilsbury's infrequent forays into defence work allowed men who were probably guilty to get away with it. For example, he helped secure a not-proven-guilty verdict in Scotland in the case of Donald Merritt, a young psychopath who almost certainly shot his mother to death to inherit her money. Later, Merritt drowned his wife and battered his mother-in-law to death.
The Spectator goes on to say that many of Spilsby's damning statements against the accused are not only mistaken by the standards of today, they were mistaken by the standards of his own time. But any unjust convictions secured through his evidence were not the fault of Spilsby alone, but of the legal system and the profession at that time. I've covered another case which Spilsby was involved in, the Blazing Car Murder, which was broadcast in January 2019. In this case, Spilsby did excellent work in difficult circumstances. That episode had a very low download figure, less than a thousand. I don't hold out for great interest in this episode, which is historic. Best download figures come from more recent cases. But I hope that I've shown two sides to Spilsbury, his hard work, his dedication to his job, which helped track down murderers, and the other side where his dogmatic nature and inflexible approach did not help in the pursuit of justice. Well, I'm taking my summer holidays now and will be away for a month, but I hope will, you will continue to listen to my next podcast, which I will upload in the first week of September. I'd like to thank Damselfly for providing the background music. Their music's available on Bandcamp. And thank you for listening. So now I'll say goodbye. Goodbye.